Good morning, church. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. We'll read Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and said, Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. Now, as we look this over, Give me a moment to uh, recap where we have been in Matthew uh, chapters 8 and 9 recently. Uh, so over the last couple of chapters, we have seen a number of important examples of faith uh, and Jesus giving important lessons on faith. Uh, we started chapter 8 with the faith of the Roman centurion who made a surprising claim to Jesus that he was confident he could heal d diseases from afar then we looked together at a tumultuous boat trip, and we saw Jesus save a boat full of disciples whose faith had begun to fail as they faced their own mortality. In chapter 9, we've heard about the faith of a paralyzed man and his friends. Uh, we saw Jesus connect that faith to the forgiveness of sins, and we also learned that faith and healing are not the same thing as his paralysis was healed separately as a proof to the skeptics that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins. So by now you've probably noticed the theme. Matthew, at this point, is, is shining a spotlight on faith, asking us in a way, what is faith? What do you believe about faith? And so today we'll see two here in this passage, two surprising stories of faith and healing that run parallel, uh, that happen temporally very close together, and we'll have the opportunity to sharpen our understanding and even our expression of the gospel. So look back with me at verses 18 and 19. While he was saying these things to, to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus rose following him. Mark and Luke tell us that this man who approaches is one of the rulers of the Capernaum synagogue named Jairus. He was a community leader and respected, uh, a respected member of the society. So that makes his behavior here all the more surprising. What he does is not only kneel, he prostrates himself uh, before Jesus. This behavior would normally be reserved only for one of much higher standing than yourself. 
uh, in Jairus's case, a king, a judge, uh, a, a greater ruler. In other contexts, though, the same word is used of worshiping God. So we don't really know from the passage of Jairus grasped the union of divinity and humanity present in Jesus, but he did clearly place Jesus above the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Look at what he says to Jesus. Come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And think about this. Of Abraham, Moses, and all of the prophets, only Elijah and Elisha have resurrections associated with their ministries. In both cases, the prophets seemed a bit unsure whether or not God would grant such an audacious uh, request. And uh, Jairus suggests this to Jesus as though it would be an absolutely simple thing. And I want to draw our mind back to the fact that he is a ruler of the synagogue. He knows well the stories of Elijah and Elisha. He could easily tell you that Elisha, that Elijah laid across the dead body three times before God raised the boy. He would remind you that Elisha did something similar and paced the room. For Jairus to say, lay your hand on her and she will live, as though it were a simple thing, put Jesus in a league all of his own. So verse 19, Jesus, without hesitation, goes and takes his disciples with him. Mark and Luke tell us, that a great crowd followed them, pressing in on every side. That brings us to verse 20. Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. So at face value, she's in a rough situation, right? But Mark and Luke give us a little bit more detail here, uh, especially Mark, I'm sorry, uh, telling us that the woman had suffered greatly under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather grew worse. So a lot of commentators that look at this passage will assume a specific type of bleeding here, which would have made her ritually unclean and tend to go with that sort of line of thinking. Um, ritually unclean according to Leviticus 15. If she was unclean, that would have made her touch pass her uncleanness to even a normal person's garment. But you will notice that in the passage, the specific disorder that she's suffering under is not given. And in verse 21, she even she, she says, I will be saved rather than I will be made clean, which is, if you recall, what the leper said back in chapter 8. So it, it's a strong possibility anyway that she's not suffering necessarily from something that made her ritually unclean and unable to go to the temple and worship. But I doubt that that made her situation much more pleasant. She was, for all intents and purposes, incurably diseased. And who knows at this point what the townsfolk thought of her, but she was apparently alone, penniless, 
and kind of hoping to disappear in this crowd. The point is, she had exhausted all of her options. And we can't tell how long it's been since she had any hopes of improvement. And yet, she hears about this Jesus and all that he's done. And there is this curious certainty that seems to form in her mind, right? We even get an insight into what she's thinking. This could be the one, the prophet, the Messiah, even. A man so pure, so holy, so powerful that healing exudes from him. And from the Old Testament, she had plenty of reason to believe so. But we come to verse 22, and we find that she has touched the fringe of his garment And Jesus turns, seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. So here's the real heart of the matter, and we're going to camp out here for a moment. She was right to hope in him in this way. But Jesus wants to clarify things for us and make sure she understands So we had better pay attention to his words as well. Jesus says, your faith has made you well. But when we read that statement, we import a lot of baggage to the scriptures, don't we? The the world has been full of ideas about the nature of faith. What is faith since the temptation in the garden? And in some way, they're whispered in our ears every day. But to illustrate this point, let me read you some quotes, some real quotes that are out there in the world on the nature of faith. First, have faith in yourself. Second example, to one who has faith, no explanation is necessary. To one without faith, no explanation is possible. And it That one makes me feel a little bit like Yoda wrote a fortune cookie, but. um, Third example, faith is not the product of reason. Faith is a force. Finally, we're going down the rabbit hole with with a longer quote here. If you're believing for a new car, clean out your garage. If you're believing for a new job, put together a new wardrobe. If you're believing to sell your home, start packing. When you take a tangible step of faith, you're acting as if what you've prayed for is already done. And that's the kind of faith that leads to a manifestation. In other words, a payoff. The last two quotes I gave you come from the public website of the world's wealthiest preacher. With almost $1 billion to his name, he would like for you to believe that this type of faith that he is selling is the source of his extravagant success. His name is Kenneth Copeland, and he preaches what they call the word of faith. This faith is a kind of brash, presumptive demand on God, as though you were a petulant child saying, Daddy, now! 
this view of faith combines the worst cultural misappropriations of faith with the words of Jesus' teachings and reinvents faith into a plausible-sounding alphabet soup of untruth for itching ears. The word of faith teaches that faith is a means to an end, and their teachers loved this verse, verse 22. Now, as a parenthesis, I do want to stop and say, let me be clear, God does answer and often bold prayers positively. And he often grants us more than we could ask or think, right? But he, he, he grants those prayers that come in, according, in accordance with his priorities, not, as, as James would say, to spend them on our own passions. The redefinition of faith perpetuated by the word of faith is pervasive and subtle, And I'm sorry to spend so much time on it, but whether you're trusting in Jesus and reading the scriptures faithfully or you're uncertain that your faith is genuine, this affects you. It's hard to separate this linguistic drift in the meaning of faith that we're experiencing in our day, even from the way that we hear the good news of the gospel. This is really important. To give it some personal background, I never heard any word of faith teaching growing up directly. I grew up hearing the need for faith and repentance in a conservative Baptist church, and and yet this idea of faith, this distorted version of faith, still infected my own view. I knew of the coming judgment, and I knew that God must punish my sin. And I knew that Christ was the only way of escape from hell. And yet I still thought that faith was the one thing I had to generate in myself to be saved. Faith became the one elusive saving work that I had to do. Became to me the tool or the key to unlocking my own salvation. This falsehood kept me from Christ for years, and I strove and I anguished, and I wondered in terror why my efforts at faith were not sufficient to assure me of salvation. So, now we know what faith isn't, but I want to answer the question, What is it? Hebrews 11, verse 1 is helpful. I also want to point out that sometimes this word we have translated as faith is also translated trust or conviction or used of God saying he is trustworthy or faithful. As it is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19. But I want to I take another look at the two examples, these two parallel stories that we've started to look at here, the synagogue leader and the bleeding woman. And look at their faith. Look at the way that their faith was expressed. Jesus points it out. We need to look at it. Was their faith irrational? 
Was their faith a decision to ignore the facts in front of them? Was their faith a tool to them to get what they really wanted? Was it a force by which to manipulate the cosmos? Was it a mere agreement with the message of Jesus or his philosophy? Was it the subject of a motivational kitten poster? It was not. These two were not preoccupied with their own faith. They were preoccupied with looking at Jesus. The faith we see him pointing out and praising is more akin to a desperate trust in the one person who truly deserved it. Martin Luther wrote in his commentary on Romans, faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that a man would stake his life on it a thousand times. So, Marty, I think that's pretty good. A living, daring confidence in God's grace. Yes. But sometimes, like verse 21 This daring confidence is feeble. It's desperate. It's nearly hopeless, and it's scared. It looks a lot like the trust of a child who runs up to mom or dad, throws themselves around a leg, and clings on for dear life. That is what faith looks like. Simple, trusting reliance. Or we could also say hopeful confidence. Matthew 18, verse 3, illustrates this for us. Ultimately, this kind of faith, trust, or confidence in God is itself the gift of God, granted by the Holy Spirit through the hearing of the good news of Jesus as we read earlier in chapter 2 of the letter to the Ephesians, we are dead in trespasses and sins. I've never seen a dead person of their own volition get up and follow anyone or anything. But by grace you have been saved, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This faith, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This kind of trust requires giving up on our own goodness. It requires seeing our own moral corruption for what it is and looking to Christ to be our only source of good. The source of our faith, even, of grace to us, of everything. The only way to please God is that we receive our goodness from God through Christ. This is, beloved, the good news of the gospel. God is so good that he longs, he longs to share his own goodness with you. And he made a way for that to happen through the innocent death of Jesus on your behalf. He will not be your debtor or your co-equal, He will be your only source of good, or all you have is pretense and pride, and God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble.
So if my childhood struggle with faith is at all familiar to you, maybe you're weighed down knowing about your sin and the coming judgment, but you can't seem to find that peace in Christ. Look back at this woman. She has nothing to offer, so little importance that she's not even sure Jesus would accept her. That's okay. Remember what Jesus said a few verses earlier. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Learn what this means. I desire compassion, not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Beloved, Jesus came to call those who know they are sick, who know they are morally destitute, without a pretense of wholeness, of health, or of righteousness. So bring your desperation, coupled with even the faintest hope that help may be found here at the feet of Jesus, and come crawling to him in prayer. What is required of you? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. All right. With all that said, one suggestion. Church, the next time you read the Bible and you come across the word faith, try substituting the words trust or confidence and see if you don't think that captures the intended range of meaning uh, and clarifies the message for you. Verse 23, verse 23. When Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. So this seems a little odd maybe, but it was expected that even the poorest families would hire a flute player, and several professional professional mourners when any family member uh, was near death. Uh, a leader of the community like Jairus would have probably had a lot more mourners and a lot of folks come from the community, and we do have that uh, seemingly confirmed here Essentially, we see a crowd making a commotion. Uh, The NASB translates it a noisy disorder, and the language is really pointing here toward a multitude in an uproar. A lot of people being very loud. Keep this in the back of your mind. It'll be important in a few minutes. Verse 24, I want to ask the question, why did Jesus say this? He comes into a funeral and he says, go away for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. So why did Jesus say this? First, it seems that she is really dead. No one is confused about this or sending mixed signals. The writers of the gospels, her parents, all seem convinced that she is dead. And professional mourners should know a corpse when they see one, right? 
Second, couldn't this seem a little disrespectful? If you put yourself in that crowd for a moment, even if you've heard the stories about Jesus, this statement could sound insolent or dismissive. This is every parent's worst nightmare. The the funeral of their little girl. This is an unimaginably hard and sorrowful moment. This is a time for them to mourn and say goodbye to a a precious young life, another, another life in a long history of lives cut short by the curse of sin. And Jesus tells them abruptly, stop mourning. Why? I'll suggest five reasons. First, it is common for the scriptures to refer to death in terms like falling asleep. Especially in the Psalms, we see David very regularly using this imagery. And Jesus does refer to other resurrections that he performs, like Lazarus, as waking him from sleep. So this theme runs throughout the Old Testament, and we see uh, Paul and the apostles picking up this theme in the New. Reason two. It is possible that he said this publicly to prevent the family and the attendants and anyone who had come in, in contact with the body from needing to consider themselves ritually unclean. If they had forgotten to ritually cleanse themselves on the third and the seventh days, okay, third and the seventh days, according to Numbers 19, they would have been unclean for life. Jesus is about to resurrect their daughter. That's a pretty good reason to forget ritual cleansings. Coming in contact with a dead body represented the most serious case of uncleanness prescribed in the law of Moses for any normal man, obviously. Again, we can see without a doubt that cleanness is flowing forth from Jesus, not the other way around. He remains unstained by the world and all the mess that we've made of it. Third reason. By this time, you would think some of them would have figured out that God cannot lie. Jesus has the power to unmake death. He is not lying to them. He holds the keys to death and Hades. He has complete, unchangeable authority over this situation, and he fully intends to exercise it. Last week's passage on the new heavens and the new earth should be etched into our minds when John wrote, Look, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. If you are in Christ, death has no permanent hold. 
read 1 Thessalonians 5, and we see that we grieve with a forever hope in our hearts because Jesus who rose again will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. When Jesus walks out of that room in Capernaum, it will be like that girl was just resting. And when he calls his people, the dead in Christ will rise first, rested and ready to meet the Lord. Reason four. Jesus sends the crowds out and dismisses the mourners. And much like in in many other gospel accounts, we see Jesus is willing to downplay even his greatest miracles and to slow the spread of his fame on the account of his miracles alone. The mere praise of man is not his motivation. He is motivated by the lost sheep and the glory of, of his father. He loves compassion, and he does not flaunt his power. Reason five. Luke tells us that this is a young girl, about 12 years of age, and so parents put ourselves in in the shoes of those parents. Think, Think about your own kids, and kids, imagine yourselves in this situation, From her perspective, it may have been a lot like waking up. And this brings us back to why he sent everyone out. Remember when I pointed out all the noise and disorder earlier? How would you like to wake up at the center of a massive, noisy crowd? To make it worse, think about how much they would shout and freak out when they saw her waking up. Experiencing that from the girl's perspective would be scary for anybody, let alone a child. Instead, we see Jesus coming in as this comforting presence, making the place quiet giving her a hand up and giving her time to wake up and work through the shock of what has just happened and all the people who are probably still standing around outside. Well, hopefully those five reasons will grant us some clarity on why Jesus may have said this. But I just want to take a moment to marvel at Jesus himself. The Lord Jesus is not worried about the superior mocking of the crowd. He's not worried about their skepticism. He is not worried about impressing them. He does not need to assemble onlookers or sycophants to watch him do miracles. He is here to do something compassionate and selfless for this family. And he's even kind and gentle in the way that he does it. 
Jesus is not disaffected or neutral about our sorrows or our needs. He grasps them more fully than we do. He is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He embodies the wisdom from above, which is pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. Beloved, this is the divine personality on which all lesser personalities are modeled. We may be made in the image of God, but Jesus Christ is the image of God. He is God with us. God come down to us. God come to meet us. God come to make a way for us. Jesus is more and better than us in every conceivable way and in many inconceivable ways. And the highest goal that we can strive for is to know him, to love him, and to imitate him. Verse 26, the report of this went through all that district. I want to take a moment to circle back here and think about the fallout from this situation. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 tells us the last enemy to be defeated is death. This girl that Jesus raised from the dead eventually died again. The woman whom he healed eventually died. Kenneth Copeland will die, and you and I will die. And no amount of trusting confidence or desperate hope will save us from experiencing that pain. But just as Stephen was a man bold in faith, and he was faithful as a martyr, Faith is not a means of escaping pain. Faith is the only way you will make it through. Even when we don't know why pain exists in our lives, this pain that we suffer now or the pain that we fear in the future, we can trust his goodness. We can trust his kindness. That is my application point for today. I want to point us to Hebrews chapter 9. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Some of you hearing me are not eagerly waiting for him, or you are not sure. 
if you are in Christ. And so I want to close this morning with just a simple presentation of the gospel. And I ask if you are uncertain or you are struggling with what faith in Christ might mean, listen carefully. Kids, listen carefully. God made you. And yet, you have gone wrong. You have ignored his goodness and violated his laws. There is no way for you to cleanse yourself or to undo the wrongs that you have done. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. Stop trusting yourself. Stop trusting yourself or anything else and look to Christ. God became flesh, took on a human nature, walked among us, lived a perfect life, died an innocent death for you, was buried for three days, and rose again because it was not possible for the grave to hold him. He stands in heaven now at the Father's right hand, standing in the gap for those who trust and love him. You want this kind of Savior. This is the only kind of Savior to be had. There is no other name in heaven or on earth by which we might be saved. So bring him your nothingness, bring him your emptiness, reject the brokenness of your own ways, and he meets you there with unmerited favor. He meets you there with forgiveness. He meets you there with fullness of joy in this life and ever more abundantly in the life to come. Beloved church, as you follow him, trust in him. Unbelievers, don't dawdle. Talk to Jesus. Ask him for forgiveness and ask him for help to trust him. He gives more grace. Amen. Pray with me. Our kind God and Father, thank you for sending Jesus, your Son, to be among us, to bear our reproaches, and to bear the consequences of our sin. In his innocence, all of our afflictions were cast on him. So, Lord, please grant us that we may trust in him. Grant us a full measure of faith that we may not waver, that we may look expectantly 
to the Lord Jesus' coming. Lord, would you grant grace that darkened eyes would see, that hardened hearts would be softened, that dull ears would hear. Would you grant salvation to those who are not believing? And would you grant confidence? Confidence. Would you grant us the kind of confidence that we can stake our trust in you on a thousand times over? Lord, you are good and your love endures forever. Amen.